All right, you can turn back to Romans chapter 1. While you're turning there, I wanted to start this morning by sharing a couple things with you guys. Um, first of all, uh, I've heard from a lot of people who would like to know how we can be helping those who have lost everything in Bastrop. Uh, we have actually a lot of people we know who have lost homes in the fires in Bastrop. We are in communication with uh, a few churches down there and just wanted to let you all know, if you would like to be involved in what God is going to do in the Bastrop area, we're going to be posting on our website by Tuesday uh, links of how you can give to those needs and how you can be involved, not just financially, but even participating in relief efforts in Bastrop. So if you feel called to that ministry to help those folks, go to our website. It'll be on the main page by Tuesday. Um, Second opportunity I wanted to let you guys know, Brian Fisher and I are going to be doing something a little different with this sermon series. We'd like to give people the opportunity to go a little deeper in Romans if they would like. And so each week after our sermons, we're going to be writing uh, a page of questions following that sermon. So uh, sermon discussion questions that will take you deeper in the passage and further in the theology and will help you and convict you to really apply it to your life. So we're going to put all of those questions for each week on our website. And here's how you get to it. If you go to our homepage and if you click on that downloads button up there, it just says downloads. If you click that, uh, menu will come up and click study questions. A new link on the bottom of it will take you to a page with all of the Roman sermon series study questions for each sermon. So we'll have um, the, the sermons questions up by Tuesday following the Sunday sermon. So that's for individuals if you just personally want to go deeper or families if you want to take your family through that or small groups or home churches if you want to go in depth through Romans with us. It'll take you further. It goes a lot further further than what we can do on a Sunday morning. So wanted to make you guys aware of that. Now let's go ahead and jump into Romans. And I, I wanted to start this morning by asking you a question to think about. When you meet someone new, how do you introduce yourself to them? How do you introduce yourself? I, I'm going to assume that you start with your name. Hello, my name is. But your name doesn't really say much about you. They don't learn much from your name. What matters is what comes after your name. Hello, my name is blank. I'm a what? What do you say after your name? That's what really matters. That's where you identify yourself. So think for a moment, how do you introduce yourself? What do you tell someone new after your name? Now, for a lot of people, uh, it's going to be their job, right? That's probably the most common one, especially if we have a job that we're proud of or that we like or that has a, a cool title, a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a professor, I'm a CEO. That's a good one to drop. So you're going to put that one out there as your title. Or maybe you're going to share uh, uh, some, some life situation. I, I'm a student. I'm a mom, a dad. I'm a widow. That's what you share. Or maybe a relationship. I'm Blake. I'm the husband of Julie. That's a pretty good relationship I've got. I dropped that pretty quick in conversations. Or maybe you're going to drop a hobby. I'm a hunter. I'm a golfer. I'm a quilter. Um, or maybe it's going to be your political affiliation. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Maybe uh, it's an organization you're in. I'm Kyo. I'm Bucks. Uh, maybe if you really don't have anything else to share, you share your sign. I'm Gemini, in case you ever wondered about that. <laughs> what you share after your name tells us a lot about you. Because it doesn't only tell us about that facet of your life, but it tells us about your priorities. Because you chose to talk about that rather than something else. You chose that to be the first word that comes after your name instead of something else. If you choose to share your job, then you are telling us not only what your job is, but that your job is important to you. You are revealing your identity to us, how you perceive yourself by what you choose to share after your name. 
What we say after our name tells people a lot about us. And it's the same thing for Paul. Paul will tell us a lot about himself by what he says after his name. Because Romans is, is unique. Among the letters of Paul, Romans is unique because Paul actually was introducing himself. I don't know if you realize that. Almost all of the letters of Paul were written to churches that he planted or to men he discipled, but not Romans. Romans was written to people who had never met Paul. He did not plant the church in Rome. He had never visited them. He had never taught them. We don't actually know who planted that church. Paul had no direct connection to them. So in Romans, Paul has to introduce himself to them. Now, actually, by this point in church history, they would have known the name Paul. Paul was actually super famous in the ancient Christian world. Everybody knew about Paul, but what much of what the Romans would have known about Paul would not have been pretty. Paul had a very rough past. What they would have known about Paul, most of it would have been pretty ugly. And so I want to talk about that with you for a moment. Turn to Acts chapter 7. We're actually going to start this morning. You can leave your finger in Romans, but we're going to start this morning by looking at Paul's life before Jesus. Paul's background. Who's the guy who wrote this letter? What was Paul's life before he met Jesus? Uh, Paul, as, as a child, he went by the name Saul. S-A-U-L, and, and Saul had his feet in two worlds. He was born a Roman citizen. Now, in the ancient world, that was actually a huge privilege. Very, very few people had that. You were not just a citizen of Rome because you were born in the Roman Empire. It was a very rare privilege that brought incredible advantages. You had rights and freedoms that no one else had. You had economic opportunities that no one else had. You had great things happen to you if you were a Roman citizen. Paul was by birth a Roman citizen, really privileged guy. And as a good Roman citizen, he would have been schooled in Roman and Greek culture. He knew the Greek language well. He knew Greek philosophers, Greek history. He knew the secular world very well. He had his, feet, his foot firmly planted there. But he also had his foot firmly planted in Judaism because Paul was a Jew. He was not a Gentile. He was not a Roman, not a Greek. He was a Jew born to devout Jewish parents. Now, it's really interesting. When you read the New Testament, when you read the letters of Paul, you realize pretty quickly, this dude knew his Old Testament. Like, it just comes out of him. It's not like he had to pause and say, I'm, I'm looking something up, just a second, or, or quote something while it's found in, in this place. No, he just knew it. It just flows out of him. As a son of devout Jewish parents, probably Paul had pretty much the whole Old Testament memorized could probably quote you anything from it. At an early age, they would have sent him off to Jerusalem. He, he learned, he was trained by one of the greatest Jewish teachers of the age. And that teacher trained Paul to be a Pharisee. Paul was part of the party of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were kind of a, a small subset of Jews that led the Jewish religion. In general, these guys were, were pretty wealthy guys. Most people living in Israel, they had to just work all day to earn food to eat. They had to live hand to mouth. They didn't have time to go practice Judaism, but Paul was wealthy. And so he joined the party of the Pharisees. These are guys who had enough wealth that they could dedicate their day-to-day -day lives to religion. So he studied the Old Testament day in and day out, and he practiced the, the outward practices of the Pharisees. They boiled all of Judaism down to 613 commands that they practiced in their daily life. And Paul was, was so good at practicing Judaism that in Philippians 3, he'll talk about his life as a Jew, his life as Saul, and he will say, in accordance with the law, found blameless. Paul was incredibly self-righteous. 
Paul, to, to human eyes, looked incredibly righteous. Like a good Pharisee, he never did anything immoral. There was nothing you could accuse him of. Paul was a self-righteous Pharisee. But Paul went further than most Pharisees. Paul distinguished himself among the other Pharisees by becoming the chief persecutor of the early church. The Pharisees as a group hated Christians. They hated Christianity. They found the idea of a crucified Messiah to be offensive. More than that, they, they saw no reason that they would need a savior. Jesus offers to be my savior. Why would I need that? I got my life pretty well taken care of. I'm self-righteous after all. I don't need that. So they hated Christianity. They launched a full-fledged attack on the Christian church early in the book of Acts. And leading that assault upon the church was Paul. Now look with me at the end of Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 58. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. When they, that is the Pharisees, had driven him, that is Stephen, the first martyr of the church. When the Pharisees had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution against the, began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul was the, the worst of the worst a murderer, a persecutor of Jesus. He tried his best to destroy everything associated with Jesus Christ. In the annals of church history, Saul was like the greatest enemy of the church. And yet all of that changes in Acts chapter nine. The next chapter, Paul's life changes dramatically as he goes to a city called Damascus. Look with me, starting in chapter nine, verse one. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul falls on his knees because he knows something big is happening. He asks, who are you, Lord? That's a divine title. Who are you who's doing this? And the answer he hears, I am Jesus. Those three words change everything for Paul. Before this moment, in Paul's mind, Jesus was a blasphemous peasant who got what he deserved on the cross. That's what Saul believed about Jesus. But all of a sudden, in an instant, like a flash of lightning, Saul realizes, no, Jesus is Lord. He is the King of kings and Savior of the world that he claimed to be. He's God. And that realization completely changes Paul's life. He does a 180 on the spot. Look a few verses later. Look down at, at verse 20. 
And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Talk about a complete about face. Paul turns 180 in the matter of a few days. He goes from persecutor of the church to preacher of the church. Now he's the one proclaiming Jesus as God. Now he's the one getting death threats from the Pharisees. Paul's life is instantly and totally transformed through this encounter with Jesus Christ. It changes his identity. It changes his mission in life. And we see that reflected at the beginning of the book of Romans. When Paul introduces himself to these Christians he's never met. What I want you to do is turn back to Romans. We're going to look at just verse 1 to begin with. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. I want you to look at what Paul says after his name. What titles does he choose to identify himself by? Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is giving us two titles here. Two titles that shape his identity. Two titles that tell us who Paul thinks of himself to be. The first title that Paul shares of himself is slave of Messiah Jesus. Slave of Messiah Jesus. Now, um, unfortunately, in our English translations, for most of us, we see the word servant rather than the word slave. Servant. Now, when you think of servants, what do you think of? Well, probably for most of us, we think of people like this. Like good old England and maids and butlers and valets and doormen. People who work a job for a rich English landowner. It's a hard job, but it's a job. You get paid wages. You can quit that job at any time. That is not what Paul had in mind. This is the Greek word doulos. It means slave. It means someone who is owned by another person. It's not a job. You work for a master, not a boss. It's not a job that you can quit. It's your life. You can't walk away from it. Paul is talking about slavery. He is a slave of Messiah Jesus. Now, for a moment, we need to pause because when we hear this word slave, what comes to our minds for so many of us is what slavery looked like in this nation a couple hundred years ago. And that's not what Paul had in mind either. American slavery was very different than Roman slavery. Roman slavery was not racial. It wasn't like the racial slavery we had here. In the Roman Empire, you became a slave if you were conquered in battle or if you had a debt that you could not pay. In the ancient world, if you couldn't pay a debt, what did they do with you? Do you know? They threw you in prison. Pretty serious stuff to not pay your debts in the ancient world. They would throw you in prison. That's not a very good thing. So people would sell themselves to someone who was wealthy. That wealthy person would pay their debt. And so the slavery of the Roman world was not racial-based. It was usually not the cruel, horrific slavery we think about in our past. And yet it was still slavery. No one wanted to be a slave in the ancient world. In fact, in in the Greco-Roman culture, slave was a title of dishonor. It it was a humiliating thing, lowest on the social rank. You did not want to be a slave. It was a title no one wanted in Paul's day. Reminds me a little bit of, of the party we had at my high school after prom. Everyone went to this party in the high school cafeteria after prom. And at that party, they handed out titles, 
They gave people awards or, or titles, names that the senior class had voted on. And I was one of the lucky few to be awarded a title that night. Problem was, the title that my senior class voted for me was most organized. <laughs> most organized. Okay, first of all, go in my office right now and you will know that that title is a lie when it is given to me. But second, really the big problem was winning the title most organized was pretty much a nail in the coffin of my high school dating life because no girl wants to go out with the most organized boy, at least not high school girls. They want to go out with most athletic most popular, most funny, best looking, not most organized. (laughs) That was a title that no one wanted, just like the title slave in Paul's day. No one wanted to be called a slave except for the followers of Christ. It's actually fascinating. If you read your New Testament, you will find that Paul, Peter, John, James, and Jude all begin their letters by identifying themselves as slaves. It's incredible. Like the most dishonoring, shameful, humiliating title, they wear it like a badge of honor. They don't even get through verse one before they tell you, I'm a slave of Jesus, I'm proud of it. Now actually, that's a very Old Testament idea. And the Old Testament slaves to human beings, being a slave to a human being is a bad thing. You don't want that. But being a slave to God is a good thing. In fact, it's a great thing in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only the most faithful followers of God in the Old Testament that win the title slave of Yahweh. It's people like David and Moses, Elijah and Joshua. They're the only ones that get this title slave of Yahweh. It's a title of honor for them. And so it is for the followers of Christ. You see time and time again in the New Testament, slave has been reappropriated by Jesus. To be a slave of Jesus is not a title of shame and dishonor and humiliation. It is a title of honor for us. It's a title of honor that communicates two things. First of all, ownership. To be a slave means to belong to someone else. Paul was not his own man and neither are we. We, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to someone else. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you, that is all believers, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. When Jesus saved you from sin, he didn't just set you free from slavery to sin to run around on your own. No, he set you free from slavery to sin by buying you into his own possession. You no longer belong to sin and Satan and death. You now belong to Christ. All believers are slaves of Christ. We belong to him. He owns us. In other words, we are not equals with Jesus. He is not our boss and we his employees. We do not have negotiating rights with him. He owns us. We are his possession. That's the first thing that slave of Jesus implies, that we belong to him. Second thing it implies is devotion. Devotion, to be a slave of someone means that you are completely devoted to that person. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What Jesus is helping us understand here is slavery is not a -a 40-hour-a-week job. Slavery is 24-7, 365. To be a slave is your identity. You belong. You are completely devoted to your master. You can have only one master. Jesus isn't your Sunday-only boss. He's the master of your whole life. Every hour of every day belongs completely to him. And so you are called to be completely devoted to him. That's what Jesus wants from us, that we would completely 
and unflinchingly devote every moment of every day to him because he deserves it. One and only master, that's Jesus. To say that we are slaves of Jesus, which all believers are, means that we are completely owned by Jesus and we are called to be completely devoted to Jesus. Let me pause for a moment because at this point, some of you may be thinking, man, this doesn't sound great. We hear the word slave and it's, it's almost painful to say. We hate that word. It's not a pretty word in our vocabulary. And some of you are new to the Christian faith and you're really wondering right now, man, when they presented the gospel to me, it sounded all like good news, all grace, all gift. And now you're telling me by accepting this thing, I become a slave. Is this like the ultimate bait and switch? What has happened? Now, let me take a moment for you and help you understand why being a slave of Jesus is actually a very good thing. In fact, why it's the very best thing possible. Why is it so good to be a slave of Jesus First reason, because slavery is unavoidable. Slavery is unavoidable for human beings. Paul says as much in Romans 6. We'll get to this passage later this semester. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, that is the gospel. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice there are only two options in this passage. You are a slave of sin or you are a slave of righteousness, that is to Christ and his righteousness. There is no third option called freedom. Now, from my earliest days as a child, I have always desperately wanted to fly. That is my secret ambition. I really wish that I could fly and not like in an airplane or hot air balloon. I just wish I could pull a Superman and fly. I've, I've always wanted to do that. I find myself daydreaming at times about how great it would be if I could just jump up and fly. What's been fascinating to me as a father is to see that same desire in my kids. They're, they're not even two years old yet. And yet when I go outside with Luke and Gracie and a bird flies over our heads, what do you think they do? They reach up for it. They cry out for it. Mm, mm, mm. You can see they desperately want to pull a Superman, jump off the ground and chase that bird. And when I see that on their, their minds, when I see them desire that, actually I get a little bit sad because I think after 35 years, I've learned that Luke and Gracie, it's never going to happen. No matter how much you strain, no matter how much you try, no matter how strong you get, you are never going to pull a Superman and fly after that bird because it is not within human nature to fly. It is not within human nature. It's not something that will ever be an option to you. And neither will freedom. Freedom, true, complete, absolute freedom is not an option available to human beings. Within God's design of humans, he created us to be slaves. We are slaves. We are all, always slaves of something, either of sin, the sinful impulses that rise from our bodies or the sinful temptations of this world. We are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to Jesus, to his righteousness, to his ways. You are slaves of one or the other. Freedom is not an option. So why is it good to be a slave of Jesus? Because you are a slave. Point two, if you're going to be a slave, make sure you've got a good master. Reason number two why it's great to be a slave of Jesus is because he is the best of masters. He tells us in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. Now, just so you know, that's, that's slave language. Take, take my yoke as your master upon you and learn from me. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus as our master is a great master because he is compassionate. He is merciful. He is kind. He wants to give us rest, peace. It's actually interesting in John, in the book of John, Jesus says, even though I'm your master, I want you to call me friend. I want us to be related like friends, even though I will always be your Lord and master. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us, even though you as slaves, you you have to, you are obligated to obey me, guess what? In the future, I'm going to actually reward your obedience. Even though you owe it to me, I'm going to reward you for it because I love you that much. Jesus is the greatest possible master. If you have to have a master, which you all do, choose the best one. That's Jesus. It's the second reason why it's a great thing to be a slave of Jesus. Third reason that it's great to be a slave of Jesus is because he chose to be a slave first. Jesus chose to be a slave for us and to die as a slave for us. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of Jesus, but he, that is Jesus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That's doulos in Greek, slave. He became a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why does Paul emphasize that right there at the end? Death, even death on a cross, as if death wasn't bad enough. Well, because crucifixion was slave's death in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was the worst form of execution they had, so they reserved it only for the worst of criminals and slaves. It's significant that Jesus was killed through crucifixion because in the ancient world, that meant Jesus is dying as a slave. He chose that for us. That's the incredible news of the gospel. He who is Lord of the universe, who is the creator, who is God, he willingly became a slave. He came to earth in the form of a slave on our behalf. And then as if that wasn't enough, he died a slave's death for us. Even though he was innocent and righteous and pure, he died the worst form of death imaginable on our behalf. And because of that death, because he died for us, now Jesus has the capacity to deliver us from our slavery to sin and transfer us into his family, to be these blessed, loved slaves of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and and that is new to you, you've never understood that Jesus wants to rescue you from slavery to sin and make you a member of his family, he can do that right now for you if you simply believe. That's all it takes. Just believe that Jesus, the son of God, really did die for your sins and then rise from the dead victorious over sin and death and Satan. He did that for you. That's how much he loves you. Believe it and you'll be saved. And for those of us who have believed that good news, who have believed that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, the question before us this morning is, now that we know that we're slaves, we're slaves whether we recognize it or not, now that we know that we're slaves, will we live like it? Today, will you live like the slave of Jesus that you are? Will you wear slave of Jesus as a badge of honor? Will that be the core of your identity? When you meet someone new, is that what you want them to see? I am a slave of Jesus. Now, you you don't necessarily share that in the first sentence because that would be weird to say slave of Jesus. But are you going to reveal it to him by your actions? Are you going to show yourself to be a follower of Christ, dedicated to Jesus, owned by Jesus, devoted to Jesus? And today, will you, will you give your whole life to him? 
Will you rededicate everything you have, everything you are, all your moments of every day to your master? Now, unfortunately, the problem for us is, is that's not a decision that we can make once and be done. Sin, our former master, is always trying to lure us back. Every day, sin is trying to lure you back under its mastery. It's possible for believers to become mastered by sin. We don't lose our salvation, but we begin to obey sin. And so each and every day, we face a choice. Today, will I choose to live like the slave of Jesus that I will be for all eternity? Will you choose to live as a slave? to devote yourself completely to Jesus, to wear that as your badge of honor, the core of your identity. I am forever a slave of Messiah Jesus. That was the first part of Paul's identity. Most important thing about him in his mind, most important thing he wanted you to know about him, he is forever slave of Messiah Jesus. Now to the second title that Paul gives us. It's right there in the rest of the verse. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul wants us to know that he is an apostle, an apostle called by God's will. Now, what does that word apostle mean? Apostolos in Greek, the basic meaning is actually just messenger. It just means a messenger, someone who brings a message on behalf of another. Uh, an apostolos doesn't represent themselves, they represent whoever sent them. So that's the basic meaning of the Greek word, and you'll see that word used that way a number of times in your New Testament. Usually it'll just be translated messenger, that's apostolos. But usually in the New Testament, the word means something more. Not just any messenger, but these, these choice select few guys whom Jesus chose to be not only his messengers of grace, but the founders of his church. To build the foundation of the church through their teachings and especially through their writings. These are, I like to call these guys apostles with a capital A. These guys that God chose to reveal his grace through his word. The apostles are the ones who either wrote the New Testament or directed the writing of the entire New Testament. They gave us the foundation that the rest of the church stands upon. Who we're talking about here are Jesus' 11 original disciples. Judas is gone, plus Matthias, plus Paul and Barnabas uh, and a handful of others and and James, Jesus' brother. So we're just talking about a handful of guys who fit into this category. Apostles with a capital A. Paul is one of them. And he wants us to understand he's apostle with a capital of A, not by his own choice. Literally in, in verse one, it says he is a called apostle. He was called by God to be an apostle. He was set apart by God for this mission, this role of apostle with a capital A. Paul gives us more detail about that calling in Galatians. Chapter one, he says, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was called by God to be apostle with a capital A from the womb. Way before he met Jesus, God had already selected him to be one of these few men who would build the foundation of the church through their teaching and their writings. And each apostle had a unique role. They they each had a particular ministry focus. Paul's, right there at the end of the passage, is apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent to the Gentiles. He summarizes that. Look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 5 is really the the summary of Paul's understanding of his mission in life. This is Paul's mission. Look with me at verse 5. Through whom, that is Jesus, 
we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Let me unpack this for just a second. When Paul says we here, it's the editorial we for you English majors. He's talking about himself. I have received grace and apostleship. Actually, those words go together. The gift or grace of apostleship. God has given Paul this gift of apostleship. And what is the focus of his apostleship? To bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's Paul's mission in life. Take the gospel to the Gentile world. Lead the Gentiles into the knowledge of Jesus as Messiah and Savior. And why does Paul do it? That's the end of the verse. For his name's sake. That is for the name of Jesus. For the glory, reputation, honor of Jesus. Paul was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles for the glory of Christ. That was Paul's mission in life. But for Paul, that wasn't just a a mission statement or a job or a ministry. It was so much more than that. Look down at verse 14. Verse 14, really incredible verse. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. Now, those pair of words there, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, Paul is wrapping his arms around the entire Gentile world. So everybody who's not a Jew, regardless of your language, your race, your status, all of you, I am obligated to all of you. And that word obligated in Greek is really interesting because usually it's financial. To be obligated financially, what does that mean? It means to be in debt. That's what Paul is saying. He is under obligation. He is in debt to the Gentiles because of God's calling on his life. Because God was sending him as messenger to the Gentiles, Paul owed them a debt. He was liable to them. He had to speak the gospel to them. He's using the same language that you would use for my necessity of paying my mortgage. I have to pay my mortgage, don't I? If I choose not to pay my mortgage on a particular month, bad things happen, don't they? Because I'm liable to pay my mortgage. I'm a debtor. I have to pay. Paul had to speak. He was liable for it. He had to share the gospel with these people whom God had called him to reach. He puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul is saying, I have to share this message. I have to tell those who haven't heard of Jesus about the good news of the gospel. I don't have a choice. It's not an option for me. I have to share with all those whom God has called me to reach. So who is Paul? He is slave of Messiah Jesus, and he is apostle with a capital A to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, the one sent to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Now, let me ask the men who are going to serve communion if you would head to the back and prepare that. And while they are, let me ask you a question. How do these titles apply to us? We, we talked about the first one, slave of Messiah Jesus. That one is pretty easy to apply because we are all slaves of Messiah Jesus. Whether we recognize it or not, we're all slaves of Messiah Jesus. The second title is a little harder, though, because we are not apostles with a capital A. It's only a handful of people who were apostles with a capital A. They had an essential mission that is now complete. The apostle with a capital A jersey has been retired. It's hanging from the rafters in heaven. There'll never be another one. Those were the particular people who were chosen by God to establish the church. That's not us. However, apostle with a lowercase a is us. That does apply to us. Look at verse 6. 
Romans 1 verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Just as Paul was called, so we too are called. Called to know Jesus and called to share Jesus with the world. We are called to share the good news of Jesus just like Paul was. The question for us is, who are we called to share it with? Who are we to be messengers of God's grace to? Not to the whole world. Whole world, that's like apostle with a capital A kind of stuff. We can't do that. Who are we called to reach? Each of us individually in this room, who has God called each of us to reach? I want you to think about that for a moment. It's gonna be the people whom God has given you influence with. People whom God has connected your life with such that you have an opportunity to speak the words of good news of Jesus. So it's probably going to include any family members who don't know Jesus, any friends. It's going to include your neighbors. We often forget about them, but the people who are geographically close, it's going to include coworkers, fellow students. It may include people that you have an association with. Maybe you participate in a hobby with them or your kids are in the same sports league with them. Who has God chosen you to reach? Who are the particular people in your world that you are under obligation to reach? Have them in your minds and then realize you're liable to them. You're a debtor to them. We are under obligation just like Paul was to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those we're called to reach. Today, as we remember what happened 10 years ago on 9-11, it causes me to, to often think back, um, I've been thinking about it a lot this week. Uh, there were a lot of people who died on 9-11, but there were actually also a lot of people who didn't. A lot of people who lived because of the life-saving efforts of the firemen and police of New York City. And as I've spent some time this week reflecting back on that and remembering the stories, um, it always has amazed me to just think and, and wonder for a little while, what motivated these men and women to run into the building? What motivated them to run into a burning skyscraper? Everything within human nature says, no way. That's like the last place on earth you want to go. hundred story building that is burning. Are you kidding? And yet these men and women, they rush in. Why did they do that? And as I've reflected on that this week, I, I really think that it all boils down to this word, obligation. They went in because they were obligated by their training and by their sense of duty. This is who they were. This is why they're here is to rush into burning buildings and save people. They didn't stand at the doors and philosophize with one another about the relative merits of entering a burning building. No, they just went in because deep within they were compelled. They were obligated by a sense of duty. They had to go in there and save everyone they could. They were obligated to do it. And so are we. We share that same obligation to rush into the burning buildings of people's lives with the good news of the gospel, the one and only message of hope and deliverance and rescue for them. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, here's what I want to ask you to do. A couple things. When the elements are passed, then you can come forward. When the elements are passed a moment, I want you to do two things. First of all, I want you to thank Jesus. Thank Jesus that though he is creator of heaven and earth, he willingly became a slave on your behalf and died the death of a slave to set you free. Second, I want you to ask the Lord to give you wisdom, to give you the ability to see who are the people that you are responsible for. Who are the people in your life that you are obligated to share the gospel with? Pray that God would bring those people to your minds and pray that God would work this week to give you opportunities to share with them. So be thinking and praying about that as the elements are passed.
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received that from the Lord which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you'll join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, first and foremost, we want to thank you that in grace and love you sent your own Son the creator and Lord and master of the universe, you sent him to be a slave on our behalf. And you sent him to die a slave's death, a painful, horrific death on our behalf. Thank you for the extent of love that you have shown for us. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone in this room who has not yet understood the gospel, who has not yet come to believe that good news, that Jesus died on their behalf and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and Satan for them. Please, Lord, let this be the moment that they understand. Please convince them, persuade them of the truth of the good news of Jesus. And we pray for the rest of us, Lord. We pray that this week we would live grateful lives. We pray that we would live lives as grateful slaves of Jesus Christ, that we would wear that, that name, that title as a badge of honor, that we would want people to know, not just by our words, but by our deeds, that we are slaves of Messiah Jesus. And we pray also, Lord, that as his slaves, that we would also be your faithful messengers of grace. Please, Father, help us to, to see who the people are in our lives that you have uniquely called each of us to reach. Lord, grow in us a sense of duty, a sense of obligation to share the good news of the gospel with them. Compel us, Lord, to rush into their lives with the good news of Jesus' salvation. We pray, Lord, that through this group of people, through us, that you would do incredible things. Even this week, Lord, that you would open up doors that seemed so closed to the gospel, that you would open them up through the power of your spirit. Help us to be ready. Help us to share boldly the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that in every way that you would make our lives pleasing to you. We pray that in the name of your son. Amen.